Welcome everyone. Today we're going to cover retail, retail brands, retail uh, operations, and building out a brand new brand from scratch. And with us we have a portfolio company uh, CEO of Spoke, Ben Farron with us, as along with Tom Wilson from the Seedcamp team. And we're going to learn a little bit more about Ben, the story behind Spoke, and the origins of a brand new UK men's brand. Uh, thanks for joining us, Ben. Um, as always, we'd like to start off with a little bit of background about yourself. Tell us a little bit what you did in college and what you did immediately right afterwards. So, uh, I, I read history in college. I spent four years uh, studying history, which prepared me for not very much, um, and left in the early 2000s to join the heady world of management consulting. Uh, I found myself making PowerPoint slides for the better part of six years. Uh, I actually enjoyed it more than I thought I might, uh, but ultimately recognized the risk that I would still be doing it in 20 years' time and found that to be somewhat terrifying. So um, pretty much overnight, I had something of an epiphany and uh, left uh, quite quickly um, after a promotion. <laughs> and knew that I wanted to do something entrepreneurial, but wasn't absolutely sure what that might be. It's hard to describe how this happened, uh, because it's not the sort of uh, result that uh, manifests overnight, but uh, eventually I found myself starting and running a mobile banking or mobile payments business in uh, Sierra Leone, West Africa. The only way to really explain that is uh, just... Uh, running from the law, huh? Sorry? You're running from the law. How did you yeah. end up in Sierra Leone? <laughs> it's, I tell you, it's the Wild West yeah. in many respects. How did I find myself in Sierra Leone? Well, first of all, I became peripherally aware of the mobile money movement, if you like. So in 2007, um, a mobile money deployment called M-Pesa, based in Kenya, was just breaking the surface. And by which I mean growing incredibly fast and getting mainstream uh, coverage in papers like The Economist. Uh, and it was really exciting to watch. It's not often that you come across an idea that has such transform, transformational power as does mobile money. This, this you know, potential to emancipate, uh, emancipate uh, hundreds of thousands of, uh, of people with you know, access to the financial system uh, for, for the first time. Um, and so I became captivated by that and uh, found, uh, quite quickly uh, found myself talking to a venture capital firm based in West Africa. Um, shortly thereafter, I ran into my business partner, whose dad was or had been the finance minister in Sierra Leone. And suddenly it felt like the pieces were falling into place, that the planets were aligning somewhat. And I realized that if I didn't do this, if I didn't go and, and try and start something in this space, um, then I would forever wonder what if. And I didn't want to be in that position. That was why I left consulting. So in 2008, I found myself on a plane out to Freetown. And over the course of the next year and a half, uh, we built from pretty much a standing start uh, a, a mobile payments business called Splash. Initially, that's uh, all about regulatory and partner negotiations. You need a bunch of people on the ground to help you make this sort of thing work. So we need to talk to uh, the governor of the central bank. Uh, we need to find local banking partners, local telco partners, and so on. And between that and building the software, it accounted for the first 18 months of our time before we, uh, before we launched in, I think, 2009, late 2009. Um, and then I spent a further year and a half, two years um, growing the business from there. 
and then ultimately left Sierra Leone and Splash in, I want to say, 2011 as a function of what we might euphemistically call uh, lifestyle trade-offs. Um, so I, I had a personal life over here in London and spending three weeks before out in Freetown was not conducive to making that work. I got mm. married and so left the day-to-day running the business at that point. Splash still goes great. It had a big role to play in the recent Ebola crisis out in, uh, out in Sierra Leone and it's grown into uh, a number of other geographies in West Africa. So. Uh, uh, Ghana, Liberia, uh, I think possibly Guinea as well. So, uh, so, 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 growing great guns, and in many ways, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I don't any longer have any day-to-day involvement. Yeah, so that's very interesting because yeah, that's a very different thing than what spoke is today. Um, <laughs> and I think there's one thing I took away from management consulting: it was a cavalier disregard for expertise and experience, which is not something I'd necessarily recommend, but it's definitely, I, I'm not daunted by the prospect of starting something completely new. Um, and there's, you know, that's good in many senses. Um, sometimes, you know, you're forced to take stock of how much there is to learn. Yeah. But, um, but certainly that, that, you know, that business of getting up to speed very quickly on a new industry, which you have to do in the early mm. days of consulting, uh, I think it's helpful in terms of uh, giving me the confidence to, mm. to think about new markets and, mm. and new opportunities that don't necessarily have any connection to what I've done before. Mm. But I mean, if, if I use a very blunt quote that I heard somewhere, which was, if you want to build a billion dollar business, uh, build a business that touches a billion people. Mm-hmm. If you look at that statement, which again is, is flawed in, in several ways, but it actually does get the point across. You went, you know, if, if we look at the difference between, let's say, a retail brand, mm-hmm. not just spoke specifically, any retail brand, mm-hmm. it's not, it's going to be constricted by assets, by physical goods. And you compare that with something like Splash, where, yes, it is enabling a larger and larger group of the population to be able to do things that otherwise they couldn't mm-hmm. and far more democratized mm-hmm. than, than, let's say, a typical retail brand. What was what was your thinking behind you know what what are your thoughts on those two extremes? Well, I mean, you just captured my, my thinking around the transformational power of mobile money and what drew me in. As I say, it was quite a dramatic decision to turn around to my friends and family and my now wife and say I'm moving to West Africa to start this business, and it's only explained by the fact that you have the opportunity to touch so many people. You, you're talking about uh, you know a, a market in which there are no ATMs, no point of sale machines, no one's got a bank account, everybody's money's under the mattress, and you're talking about bringing that money back into circulation. You know, doing incredible things with transaction costs. I mean, it's not very often that you come across ideas with this sort of transformational power, and that's what drew me in. I, I am very plainly operating in a different space now, where, as you say, I deal in, in physical goods. Um, and it's certainly true that those sort of businesses have more arithmetic and less geometric curves attending them a lot of the time. But, uh, you know, on the other hand, you can develop strong cash flows from day one. And, you know, we will always need physical goods. We will always yeah. need, you know, that the, there is, you know, a very plain need for, mm. for, for the kinds of things that FMCGs and, 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 and brands like my own are making. And that allows you to develop some, some, you know, some real traction and some real revenues at an early stage in the life of the business. And I've got to tell you, there is nothing more invigorating for an entrepreneur than, than money coming in and revenue and sales. It's, it's amazing what it does to the, the quality of, 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 of your day. Mm. Uh, that kind of really tangible endorsement that you get very early on in a business like the one I'm running right now is, uh, is exciting. It gets you out of bed in the morning, and mm. so there's, there's something to be said for that. Yeah, and when, when you look at the story where we left it, you, know, you came back to the UK and You've, you've decoupled yourself from Splash. What, what, what was that time like for you in, in preps for eventually what became Spoke? 
Oh, well, initially it was really hard. I mean, the first thing I did to keep the walls on the door was go back to consulting on a freelance basis and, you know, back to making PowerPoint slides and, and Excel models. And, uh, you know, um, I, I, that was something of a cold shower, finding myself back in big corporate, um, doing those sorts of things after what had been a pretty exotic experience in the tropical climate of mm. Sierra Leone. You adapt, you adjust quite quickly. And uh, I guess I was excited by the idea that I would now, uh, I was in a position to, to think about uh, entrepreneurial opportunities closer to home that might have fewer of the kind of trade-offs that I'd had while trying to, to work out in, in West Africa. Uh, and it wasn't long before I started casting around for other ideas in, in that vein. Um, I felt like, you know, uh, you learn a lot getting something started. And there are some abstract, transferable things that you, uh, that, uh, you know, expectations as much as anything else that help you in the delivery of something new. Um, I, I felt like I, I, I put together a toolkit to, to start again, and I think that's often the case. I mean, mm. that's, this is not an unusual story. Uh, so I was excited to start again. I needed to, to build up my balance sheet for, mm. for a few months, but, uh, but eventually mm. uh, started looking at uh, the stuff in the consumer space more seriously after about a, a year, year and a half. Yeah. So without getting, we'll get into sort of what Spoke is and, and a lot of the, the, the components of it and what market it's addressing. But at what point did you start getting the feeling that you were going to end up building it in fashion? Yeah. Um, well, I guess it's important to quickly touch on the fact that Spoke isn't, uh, wasn't what it is now. Um, so I, the short answer is I came across a business in the U.S. called Trunk Club, which uh, I'm sure you're familiar with, mm -hmm. and many of your listeners will be too. Trunk Club is a curated box model. So it invites customers to fill out a questionnaire, giving their style preferences, and on the basis of that, uh, puts together a, a curated set of clothes from which they can choose on a try-before-you-buy basis. And I tried this when I was over in the States, and I thought there was some magic in the consumer experience. There was something great about having this box show up uh, you know, with, a, with a bundle of carefully selected clothes tied with a bow and a little handwritten note from your stylist. I thought there was some secret sauce in there. And Trunk Club seemed to be growing great in the US. So initially I rolled out a clone of Trunk Club. So I put together a pilot, very much an MVP, with a couple of freelance stylists and a couple of uh, deals with, with, with retailers here in London. I uh, served about 200 customers with this model before I started to develop some discomfort around the economics. So a couple of things, it demanded a huge amount of stylist time in the model that I, I was pursuing, which was pretty much a direct and frankly unimaginative Trunk Club clone. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of hours of stylist time going into boxes and, and, and that felt like something that might be tough to scale. I also worried about the working capital implications of it. Mm -hmm. So I was tying up this risky, expensive merchandise and it was sitting in boxes that were in people's front rooms or in the hallways for long, long periods of time. And that didn't feel like a really elegant or effective use of capital. Now, there are some more recent models of, of you know, this kind of curated box um, business uh, that have been brought to market in the last couple of years that frankly do things on a, uh, in, a, in a smarter fashion. I think Thread.com is, is very directly addressing the challenge of, uh, of scaling uh, style advice with data and algorithms. I think it looks really smart, and then they've got a shot at really making it work. But but in the uh, in the model that I, I was pursuing, uh, following Trunk Club, I, I had my doubts about whether that had a long term future. Now, of course, since then, Trunk Club sold to Nordstrom for three hundred fifty million dollars, which left me scratching my head about whether that was uh, that was the right call. But it was certainly I felt like it was going to be a difficult business model to raise capital around. 
In the meantime, I had obviously spent a huge amount of time, remember this is an MVP, so it was very kind of in the trenches, um, you know, in terms of dealing with, with the style questionnaires that were, uh, that were filled out by our customers and interpreting those. I mean, I had personally very direct exposure to what our customers were saying, and I felt like I kept hearing the same dominant themes around guys and their wardrobes. And that, you know, taken together, those themes represented an opportunity to, to, to build a menswear brand uh, that made more sense to men. You know, fashion is enthralled to women's wear. It's solving for things like style and novelty and trend that men care less about. And it's in hopes a retail distribution model that, that does a really bad job of delivering on the products and the experiences that the men are really looking for. And I felt like that represented an exciting opportunity. So um, after another little bit of consulting to uh, to keep that balance sheet topped up, I got stuck into uh, I got stuck into to spoke in its in pretty much its current form. And of course, in doing that, I was inspired by a whole range of vertically integrated direct to consumer businesses that that you'll be familiar with in the U.S. So I'm talking about Everlane, Frank and Oak, Bonobos, Jacko and Ledbury, Beta Brand. There's, I could go on for 20 or 30 names, uh, and that's just in the fashion space. Of course, there are things like uh, you know Casper, the, the, the mattress company, and then Warby Parker and Eyewear. And, um, there's, there's a huge range of these businesses that have developed really eye-watering growth trajectories in the last five to 10 years. And it struck me that there, you know, that, that there weren't great analogs for these businesses here in the UK. And, and yet, I could think of great reasons why they should be. So, so that's that explains my decision to pivot and to get into what I'm doing now. Okay, so I, I, that's I mean, that's really interesting to hear that kind of like roots to from you know the Trunk Club to to Spoke today. But I mean, maybe talk to us a little bit more about Spoke and you know the the product line at the moment. Um, you know, the focus on trousers, which I think anyone who's been to the site sees. And um, it's pretty trouser trouser dominant. Trouser dominant. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe a flavor of shorts in there occasionally. But um, yeah, I mean, speak to us a little bit about that and why why you went for trousers as an initial point. So starting with trousers was somewhat inspired by a great success story in the US before Bonobos. I think there is a number of things that Bonobos have done well that, that, that merit closer investigation. Um, I thought specifically in this marketplace, trousers were, well, two things. One, underserved. So there are not very many brands out there who hero the trouser. You can find trousers uh, on a lot of website, a lot of fashion websites served up by a lot of brands, but for most, it's an afterthought. If you look at the nav on the homepage and you search for trousers, it's somewhere near the bottom. And it turns out trousers are an incredibly technical product. They're hard to get right. And uh, they, they merit some attention. And there's really no one doing that. There's no one hearing it, with the possible exception of Dockers. And I don't want to beat on other brands. And Dockers is obviously an incredible success story. It's got an enormous brand, yeah, over the last 25 years. But the look on, on your face, Carlos, tells me everything I need to know. Well, it's about... my father's brand, right? right. Yeah. Exactly. It's a state or middle American brand. And it works great if you're on a consulting project in Canton, Ohio. I, I know because I've been there. But I, I think, you know, in, in this marketplace, there's room for something else. And uh, so, uh, so that, that explains the, the focus on trousers, or at least it explains trousers. In terms of focus, well, I think there's an enormous amount to be said as you bring a new brand to market about doing one thing and doing it well. I think that's much more compelling and much more authentic in the pitch to the customer. And I love this idea of doing things in the way that you know, any self-respecting modern man would do, which is to say dismantling them, deconstructing them, figuring out what really matters, and then amping it up. And it's our view in respect of menswear, the thing that most often needs amping up, needs addressing, is 
fit. Traditional retail does a horrible job of delivering on fit. When you push your clothes out through the tiny capillaries of a retail network, something's got to give, and the first thing to give is sizing. And we're all familiar with this idea of uh, falling between size gaps. So, you know, there's a material difference between a 32-inch waist and a 34-inch waist. And if you're a guy with a 33-inch waist, then you'll know what I'm talking about. You'll know that a 32-inch is feeling pretty uncomfortable by 10 o'clock in the morning, and on a 34-inch, you have to crank up a belt, uh, and, and it looks bad, it flaps around, it's ugly. Um, same is true of leg lengths. You know, 38% of men in the UK have either a 31 or a 33-inch leg length. And yet, those are lengths that are virtually impossible to find on a ready-to-wear basis. The world is awash with 32-inch chinos. Something like 30 to, uh, 50 to 60% of, the, of the, the trousers that are manufactured in the world are finished to that, or certainly in Western Europe, are finished to that length. And yet, you know, fewer than, uh, than 25% of customers have, have legs that come in that size. So we think there's something really compelling about um, fine-tuning in, in actually the middle of the bell curve as much as anywhere else and giving you that sharper fit uh, because, because we think there's, there's little that's more important in terms of delivering uh, a sharp look. Yeah, I, I love the idea of this kind of deconstructed and, and breaking it all down and really, really understanding the customer. But I mean, I guess just kind of narrowing down onto the customer now. I mean, who do you see as you know, the, the typical customer? Who's the typical buyer of a pair of spoke? So we call, him, um, we call him Jack. Jack is a 25 to 45-year-old graduate professional in most cases. He is interested in how he looks. He cares about the outcome. But he's not obsessed with fashion. He's not following the fashion pages or the fashion blogs very closely. If he picks up a copy of GQ, he's probably skimming over that glossy editorial in the middle. Um, and, and so what he's looking for is the, is the shortcut that, that we described, the formula um, that, that helps him arrive at, at the outcome, that, that sharper look. I think you know, the important thing for Jack is that he, uh, he looks good, but he doesn't try, and most important of all, he doesn't look like he tried. And uh, we think fit really helps deliver on that, because you can do something that's clean and sharp and, and simple, and then it's in some unspoken way uh, you know, a, a better or sharper look. If we go back to that, that fit and looking at how you said bulk of the brands in High Street use 32-32 or sorry, 32 lengths mm -hmm. as average, is that just because of inventory optimization challenges, and that's going to... Is that is that because they truly believe that it's um, an operational shortcut and push the problem onto the customer to solve, yeah. or is it because it's there's you know the way that you have created the company is allowing you the flexibility the way that Dell revolutionized the computer industry in terms of how parts came together at the point of uh, um, assembly for then shipping and that's you're just doing things completely different to how other brands are doing things, thus enabling your customer base to actually enjoy the fit without you taking a hit. Walk us through that, the, right. the operational and logistical challenges of, of delivering this value to, to your customer. Right, so I mean, I think both those things are true. I think that you know, traditional retail brands, as they spread their stock across many different stores and many different stock rooms, have, have a problem. And it's very difficult for them to go to market with a broad range of sizes when everything is spread so thin. I think the opportunity we have um, and I guess the kind of big meta-narrative here is that e-commerce is, is more than a channel. It's an opportunity to make a better product because it allows us to 
to put all our inventory, to consolidate all, all of our inventory in one place and to pool that inventory risk, if you like, which allows us to offer for more sizes. And it also gives us the, the opportunity to create a flexible operating platform where we can finish trousers to order, eventually perhaps make them to measure um, f- from scratch, uh, and so deliver on this on this uh, fit promise uh, underwritten by more sizes. And so, yeah, the, the, the flexibility that we're able to develop as a, as a digital player is, uh, you know, allows us to do a better job than, than resource and some French connection in delivering new trousers that actually fit hmm. and, and for for Jack and, and for other brands out there who will have different proto personas what is it that that you have constantly brought into the equation whenever you launch a new product that allows you to double check to see whether or not your your solutions or your colors or your fit uh, options are congruent with with that customer's needs because a lot of the challenge that you see with other brands is wastage you know mm-hmm. things ending up in discounted warehouses and you, you know most brands that are optimizing around fit and optimizing around the ideal sale from the first time around cannot be left over with inventory that doesn't sell mm-hmm. how are you how are you managing that and what advice do you have for other retail brands to manage that well, I think there's a great lean startup narrative here. So most big brands will be buying, make, buying their collections twice a year you know, for, for the autumn, winter, and for the spring, summer season. So placing very, very big bets on an infrequent basis. And that is absolutely categorically not what we do. We have small batch sizes and we launch new seasonal colors every month or so uh, and get a read on whether this is something that will move, something that has velocity, before we double down and spend more money dyeing up the fabric in the same color and uh, shipping that out to customers. And we're constantly tweaking and iterating on the details of our products, um, closing the feedback loop by chasing off the customers after they buy and, and soliciting that feedback in a way that, that allows us to make smart decisions about what to continue doing and what to change up. Um, but, you know, we will take delivery of stock, uh, you know, often tweaked from the last round every three to four weeks at most. Um, and I think that's, that's quite a powerful model for arriving at a, at a better answer, mm-hmm. especially when you have a really obsessive category focus as we do, trying to carve out the definitive perfect trouser right now. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, of course, we hope that kind of abstract line of thinking and that lean approach mm-hmm. will take us into other categories. I don't think we're ever going to be a brand that launches a range, a collection with a big bang. I think we're more excited about taking on categories one at a time, diving deep, understanding them, mm. figuring out what details matter and, and nailing those. And uh, so as and when we come to do something else, it'll probably be one new category mm. that, that, that we obsess over once and, and only once we feel like we've really we've really nailed the trouser product. We're getting there, but uh, so, as I mentioned, it's, it's a complicated product. Would you say that the, the nature of the customer's relationship to brands has evolved in the last decade. So if you look at the, the relationship that, let's say, my father would have had to Dockers, it's really like a pass-through relationship via a large retailer, and provided that the product doesn't fail, generally it's one of word-of-mouth referral. At best, at worst, it's just a logo on some trousers and that's that. Right. But the way that you're describing it sounds like you're expecting that the current generation of customers is going to have a long-term relationship Bidirectional, like I like this, I didn't. This was what worked. This 100%, 100%. And the level of ownership they can feel over our products changes the nature of the conversation with them. Here's my big thesis I, I don't think that um, the direct to consumer e commerce plays are about digital arbitrage. I don't think they're about cutting out the middleman and you know finding this margin that Ralph Lauren have left on the table and gifting it back to consumers. I don't think it's about that. I think that the, the key 
to these e-commerce models is that they uh, they take the uh, that they have a they allow you to develop an incredibly sharp focus on one customer. You are not dependent on footfall. You are not casting the net wide and trying to make as much of the passing trade as you possibly can. Instead, you can take this laser-like focus on on Jack and send him a stream of products and messages that make complete sense to him and maintain a kind of conversation with him. And I think if you, if you look at our, the best example of this I spoke right now is in our email marketing, where we, we think that we've adopted something of a, of a pattern break. You know, the vast majority of fashion emails that you receive, if, if, if they're tailored to menswear, which quite often they're not, which I find extraordinary, but, but if, if you receive a, a, an email from a fashion brand, uh, that at least knows your guy, it will serve you a picture of a smack addict staring into the middle distance wearing impossibly skinny clothes against a vaguely shortage backdrop. Mm. And sometimes that sells, sometimes that even sells to me, but I think that there is an opportunity to create a much richer, more dynamic, more contemporary conversation with a customer uh, and you know, talk to themes uh, and around his lifestyle in a much richer way that uh, I, I think you know, holds great potential to develop uh, you know, a more valuable relationship measured in terms of repeat purchasing, basket sizes, and, and that sort of thing. And I think that's the genius of Bonobos, Nasty Gal, Everlane, any of these. Even Everlane, you know, Everlane will talk to the blue in the face about this idea of radical transparency, cutting out the middleman and delivering you a better deal at a you know, luxury grade product at the same price. And there may be a small amount of truth in that, but mostly they've created a brand. They've created, uh, you know, they've, they've found a particular mm -hmm. kind of West Coast customer and a whole host of people who want to be like that person. And, uh, and they're sending a stream of, of messages that are really, uh, and, you know, aesthetics that really resonate with that customer. That is the genius of most of these e-commerce models, in my view. And how much is that evolving in terms of partnerships with brands? Because if you are having this narrative, I'm increasingly seeing, for example, LoomTech working with Dispatch or uh, Topo Designs working with Huckberry or, or mixed and mashes of collections between brands of associative um, customer values or associative uh, aesthetic or whatever. And if, we're, if you're introducing this concept of, as a, the brand of today, not being like the brand of yesterday, the brand of today being a dialogue between the customer and the brand, is the nature of the brand no longer a isolated thing, but rather a partnership heavy thing that brings in other products and provides like a, a encyclopedia, if you will. Of an ecosystem. An ecosystem. Yeah. Is that what the evolution of branding and retail is? Yeah, I mean, there years? is no question that we burnish our own brand by association with other brands. And whether that's some sort of formal partnership where we get some exposure to their own channels or whether it's just by virtue of the fact that we mention them and talk about them and say, hey guys, you should be looking at this exciting new watch brand. There's no question that, especially where you have a strong category focus as we do, and I think this category focus sits nicely alongside the customer focus, then you know, growing your world by association with other brands that cover other categories, other spaces in the wardrobe in our case, uh, creates a richness that's really helpful in terms of connecting with the customer and giving them the feeling that, yeah, this is for you, this is about you. Um, it's definitely incumbent on us to build that world and you know, doing it by association makes a lot of sense. Hmm. Yeah, and I think um, you know, as, the, as the market evolves, and we've seen a bit of this in the US and some of the companies you listed before, like the Warby Parker and the Bonobos at this world, and they're moving from purely online to offline stores as well. I mean, do you see an emergence of these, some of these brands and starting to disrupt the high street as well? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, everybody talks about multi-channel now and the idea that sure, you can get starts and you can find your customer base and you can really connect with them online, but ultimately you're going to have to have retail solutions to grow your brand, to develop awareness. 
um, to, 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 you know, to give customers a better sense of exactly what it is that you stand for. As soon as you kind of put that imprint on a, on a physical space, it's, it's a whole new dimension of branding that I think it's important for, for any serious, certainly fashion brand, to get to. So I certainly see some sort of physical space in our future. I like the showroom model. I think it's compelling, this idea that you could find this space somewhere between uh, you know, ready-to-wear and traditional retail, and all of the inventory challenges that, that represents and catalog shopping where everything's in a warehouse somewhere the idea that as bonobos have apparently done very successfully you can uh, offer customers access to, to the you know an opportunity to come and try the products on and see how they look and see how things look together uh before buying online at the till for it to arrive at, at home the next day i i think that's a compelling hybrid that i that, you know that, that we'd love to explore i think physical spaces are always going to be important when you're in the, in the retail of physical goods, so definitely something we'll get to, um, possibly possibly even this year. Um, uh, you know, apart from anything else, when you're a young brand, you're just getting started. The kind of PR and you know the newsworthiness of opening a store is, is helpful in terms of getting your name out there and, 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 and you know promoting discovery of your brand. So mm. so definitely something on our on our radar. And hell, we're you know, we're excited to at some stage build even even just a pop up. Um, mm. You know, part of uh, we still get excited about the fact that we handle physical product. There's something mm. really cool about you know pulling it out of the box, um, and I think that extends the idea. Of, wouldn't it be great to mm. you know, dress a space in a, in a you know in a, in a spoke style? Mm. So yeah, we're excited to do that. So we were talking earlier about how much brands are now bi-directional conversations between customers and brand owners. We talked a little bit about how partnerships drive quite a bit of of how people discover mm-hmm. uh, new brands, but also kind of have a, a ecosystem of brands that they can relate to. Another thing that is I'm seeing as an emerging trend is um, value-driven brands. And you have multiple extremes on that. Um, I read this book by Yvonne Trinard on the Patagonia brand. Mm-hmm. And you know, he talks about a lot of the values of Patagonia and how they're pushing for the reduction of uh, disposability of, of goods. So they're actively trying to promote the durability of their goods, which implies that their sales would go down. Of course, their sales are continuing to go up, but the values that they're pushing forward is that their goods are meant to be durable, not disposable. And on the opposite extreme of that, you have something like Zara, where, you know, the expectation is that every season there's going to be more and more and more, and you're promoting the disposability of goods because there's always a new one. Right. Which is fine if you see shopping as entertainment, but if you're a guy, for example, that's a less attractive prospect. And so what, what are you seeing in terms of not only spoke spoke uh, as as the values of spoke but what are you seeing in terms of what the customer especially jack what is he expecting these days is it is is there a trend towards because i know that the spoke trousers that i have i mean they're very solidly built is is the expect is is the expectation that the the brand will be promoting a certain larger message a lot of social impact message or is it limited just to the physical attributes of the product Oh, like there's no question that the details and transparency sell product, telling stories around your product that go really deep and explain the provenance of everything that you've collected and how you've put it together, is a really great way to connect with your customers. In a way, that's actually hard to rationalise. I mean, why do we care? When I flash up a picture of the Portuguese dude who's sewing our trousers, why is that so compelling? I'm not sure I have the clearest answer, although I feel it intuitively. But I can tell you empirically that when that when we tell those stories, we did something for Fashion Revolution Day last year, where we just gave a little pen portrait of one of the factories that we work with in 
northern Portugal, um, and you talked about the work they did and the people they employ, and there was no direct call to action in this email. I mean, I, I was in two minds about whether to sell it. I had, uh, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't flogging pants. I was, uh, I was just telling a story, and that felt fairly gratuitous. Was I about to see a host of unsubscribes? Quite the opposite. When I sent that email, we did. I, th I mean, this was this was a year ago when our sales would have been. I want to say thirty thousand pounds a month, something like that, and uh, we'd have done five or six in the six hours following the distribution of that email. So you're absolutely telling stories that explore the richness of your product and expose the amount of consideration and thinking that's gone into that product is a great way to sell it. If you if you're talking about explicitly, uh, you know ecological considerations, you know, uh, making stuff on a, on a green basis. We haven't really explored that yet. So understanding the, the, the carbon footprint of our clothes is not something that we've actively promoted. It, it looks pretty good given that we truck things over from Portugal rather than shipping them from, from Asia or anything like that. And, and all of our raw materials are sourced in Europe too. Uh, but, but that's not an angle that we've directly mm. explored. Um, and I think the opportunity is larger than that. It's about exploring the detail, the level of thought and consideration that's gone into an article of clothing. I think in a world of disposable fast fashion, that in and of itself is, is quite exciting to people. Mm. And of course, the idea that you're building something that will wear in, not out. I mean, we all like the idea of, uh, of you know, putting on clothes that are nicely made, that will, that will you know, age gracefully. Mm. Um, that's those are the things we fall in love with. Those mm. are the pieces in our wardrobe that are truly our favourites. The t-shirts mm. that hang around for so long, you keep them until they got holes in their arms. But you know mm. that that those that's that's what I think we're all after, and that's absolutely what we're trying to build. You know, another great brand in this space is uh, Hyatt H I U T. Definitely worth uh, a look in uh, in terms of denim. They go to great lengths to explore the provenance of uh, of their materials, and also uh, the great work they're doing in in Wales to build a factory and you know a really big business around this. Well, we always like to wrap things up with an opportunity for you to plug an organization that you feel passionate about or um, a cause. Um, Headspace has changed my life. I'm, I'm sold on, on the idea of meditation. This idea of being in the present, not churning in the past, not projecting too much into the future, just uh, living. And it's actually an amazingly hard thing to do with, uh, with the noise in our heads and that narrator chattering away. The idea of shutting him up, I found to be really compelling. And I'm the kind of person that, uh, for whom a bit of structure will help, and the you know the kind of gamification they've done with Headspace, or at least the kind of incentives that are there to keep it up and to keep a streak going, uh, I find to be helpful. And it's you know uh, meditation is like going to the gym, right? I mean, it's just exercising a different muscle, but you need practice and you need consistency, and so uh, uh, an app like that that, that helps you to, uh, to to achieve that level of consistency, I find to be really helpful. And yeah, uh, meditation makes me happier. Is the bottom line. There's a great book called. Um, 10% uh, Happier, mm -hmm. and I, lo I love the title of that book because it's, uh, it's in many senses, so unambitious, you know, it's one of these, it's not another self-help book making ludicrous claims about yeah. how your life is going to change when you just adopt these kind of three simple rules. Instead, it tells you, here's a philosophy, which by the way, has been tested for 7,000 years or whatever it is, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a few simple exercises that you can bring to, to bear on your life that, that will make you not a different person, they won't make you rich overnight, but they will make you 10% happier. And if that's what ultimately we're all optimizing for, I think that's really compelling. And so, so as you can tell, I was sold on that, and when I discovered Headspace, which allowed me to do it and do it regularly, I was, I was really excited to find it. So yeah, that, that, that feels like a strong plug. I'm, Excellent. I'm a big fan. Well, thank you for joining us, Ben. Uh, thanks, Tom, for joining us as well. And until next time, guys. Bye. Cheers. Bye.